Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a series talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Recently, we received a press release from a well-known organization claiming it was instrumental in making the Los Angeles City animal shelters, quote, no-kill. Now, we've spoken about the term no-kill before, both on the air and privately, and whenever it comes up, I have to say we get skeptical, for sure. We think it's a subjective idea that it is susceptible to slanting, can be based upon tricky counting and shady statistics. Fortunately, our friend and colleague, attorney Bob Ferber, lives and works in and around Los Angeles, and I'm going to guess he has a few opinions on this topic. After all, we all want to get to a place where no adoptable animal is euthanized, right? So we want facts, and facts are in short supply these days. Bob Ferber is a former animal cruelty prosecutor in Los Angeles and conceived of and helped develop the LA Animal Cruelty Task Force decades ago. Welcome back, Bob. Thank you, Lori. Bob, define no-kill. Well, uh, that's that's the uh, the issue. Is what is no kill? Uh, I think that it's important to go back historically where the term started. The term no kill, Laurie, came about a couple of decades ago, I believe, when it was commonplace around the country for shelters to be killing, literally in this country, hundreds of thousands, in fact millions, of dogs and cats many of which, if not most, were adoptable animals. And there were many excuses that the shelters were giving, many reasons. Some of them were good reasons why an animal was put to sleep. But in most cases, animals were being killed for no good reason. These were adoptable animals. And so there was a, I would call it maybe a political movement. It wasn't organized. But around the country, animal activists and lovers were saying, we need to have no kill. That's a goal. And there were some national organizations that labeled that, that said, this is, a, this is our goal in, in our city or in our state, that we want to be no-kill. It was a very admirable effort. The problem with it is that the term has evolved, but we still use that term no-kill. And as you pointed out, in L.A., we had a, a well-known organization, a respectable organization, announce that L.A. is no-kill. And right after that happened, I got calls from friends and saying, is that really true? Is it really no kill? Are they not killing any animals at all? And in fact, I can tell you, Lori, that even at the local shelter where I volunteer here, the staff has now been trained that when people come in, they tell people when they bring an animal in, they relinquish an animal for whatever reason, or they find an animal in the street, the staff automatically says, we want you to know that we're not no kill. And, it, and conversely, Lori, people come in all the time into the shelter saying, are you no kill? Yeah. And the confusion lies in that there is no such thing as no kill. If you take that plain meaning of the word no kill to somebody, that means no animal gets killed. Well, Laura, you said it in the introduction before I started speaking. What we want is no adoptable animal to be killed. And the, the problem with this term no kill is it doesn't include that. So it leads people to believe that no kill means that no animal will ever be killed. And when you talk to somebody like somebody walks into the lobby of a shelter with a stray animal and says, are you no kill? 
the shelter can mean that look we do everything we can if you know if we're not overcrowded you know if we have people coming in and they want this dog we won't kill it but realistically some of the situations an animal will be killed and we don't have a real term for that some shelters are now using the term low kill but that also doesn't really say what people want i think what you said is so important we want all adoptable animals not to be killed and in fact california state law has a phrase where the state legislature legislature declared all adoptable animals in california must be adopted and shall not be euthanized. But wait, Bob, but that too is misleading because how do you define adoptable? If a shelter defines no kill by not euthanizing any adoptable animals, then doesn't no kill depend on how the shelter defines adoptable? I mean, is an ear infection or an eye infection or an upper respiratory tract infection on a dog or cat? Is that treatable? You you hit the nail on the head. That is the crux of the problem, is that, you know, when you say no kill, let's assume that we all, let's say no, no kill of all adoptable animals. Then we get to what you just pointed out. What is adoptable? And that is, uh, I'll tell us a very sad story of a, a pit bull named Peaches that came into one of our local shelters and uh, had been outside all of his, her life. She ended up having a terrible uh, uh, pyrometria, which is a, a terrible infection of the uterus. Yeah. She was bloated. She was in terrible shape. And miraculously, through a nonprofit I work with, we got surgery for her. She recovered. But now keep in mind, Peaches had never been indoors, had never been in a car, in a shelter, in, had been outside, a bed, never, no contact with people. After the surgery, she came in back to the shelter. I drove her back, and this, she was a, a, a very frightened, scared. She had over 100 stitches in her stomach. Two nights later, a shelter worker went in, and she growled at the shelter worker when he was cleaning the shelter with a hose, and they killed the dog. So sad, now, Bob. Saying that he, this dog was not just, adoptable. That's an example. That's one horrible example. But it happens all the time. If you and I and many of your listeners can think of examples. A dog that has been fighting for food on the street for right. months and then comes in the shelter and they, they put the food dish down and they do this so-called behavior test. And the dog, when they take, put the food down and then try to take it away, the dog growls or tries to bite the person. Oh, the dog is food aggressive. It's dangerous. We'll put it to sleep. Right, but the dog was starving on the street for, for two oh, weeks. Yes, come on. The, what do you would expect? If you were right. a human being on the street and you had been struggling for food every meal and then somebody serves you a, a sandwich for the first time in six months and then they take it away from you, you're going to... You're gonna, you may even bite them. So there's so many examples. And you could say the same thing, Bob, for cats or feral cats. I know shelters who kill any and all feral cats that are turned in, or the cat doesn't even have to be feral. They'll kill the cats because the cats are simply shy or scared, similar to the examples you gave about the dogs, or they scratched an employee because the cat was terrified, right. and then the cat is labeled 
as feral and thus unadoptable and euthanized. I, I Lori, that it, the problem is is worse with cats because of what you said. Cats, by nature, tend to have more. It takes longer for them to adjust, and and just about any cat that's been on the street, I don't care how friendly that cat eventually is, they're going to be scared and nervous. You're right, and they're going to scratch and bite, maybe. And uh, and you and I just before this interview, I was telling you about Felix, my cat that I adopted uh, ten months ago, was living on the street, fighting for food, had cat bites. Uh, and was wounded, and it took nine months of Felix realizing that he could trust me. And now Felix is on my lap as I'm speaking to you and your listeners and won't get off my lap and, and is drooling with love. Felix would have been killed in a shelter. Exactly. I'm but even our domesticated, even my cats here at the house right now, if they were turned into this shelter, they'd be terrified and probably deemed unadoptable. You're absolutely right, and and there are countless examples in every shelter where an animal that you, that some people will say is adoptable and other people will say not, and you you know and, and the decision is left up to shelter workers, and uh, and when we talk about cats. Um, some of my best friends, it sounds corny, but it's true, are shelter workers. But historically, and from my own experience doing this for over 40 years, shelter workers are typically ignorant about cat behavior. They know very little. They know much more about dogs. So just when that cat comes in the shelter, they're not even equipped to judge if this cat really is adoptable right. and they will what they do is they jump to conclusions that this cat is not adoptable and that it becomes killed and going back to the term no kill a shelter and i'm not knocking la or any other judging a shelter individually but a shelter anywhere in the country can say we are no kill because we're not killing any adoptable animals but when you look go back well wait a minute but you killed this cat because it hissed after being on the street six weeks, six months, or you killed this dog that is recovering from major surgery and growled at a person and it didn't even bite, um, or growled when you took food away. You're absolutely right, Lori. And this is the problem with this term, is that what it really means is not no kill. It means no kill of the animals that we at the shelter have decided are adoptable. And the decision of what is adoptable this is a real difficult issue because some shelters have responded by coming up with behavior tests. An interesting thing is that in the city of L.A. and the county of L.A., the county does behavior testing. The city took a somewhat dim view of it. Uh, and it's an interesting example of two major you know, municipalities, and one thinks the behavior testing is very important, and they rely on that behavior testing to determine if an animal is adoptable. And the other shelter, who's just as respectable, has decided that these behavior tests are not uh, are not reliable. And one of the parts of that test, in fact, is to put a food dish in front of a dog and then take it away and see if the dog will let you do it. I think that's outrageous that that's part of a test. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean that just because of the dog does that, that they're going to automatically label it as unadoptable. They're going to look at other factors, hopefully. But, it, it, you know, the topic that we're discussing about what is no kill 
people should understand that that depends upon the individual shelter workers in every part of our country. They're making the decision as to what animals are adoptable and what aren't. Right. There's an interesting other side of this no-kill. Years ago, I was in the meetings when L.A. started to focus in, uh, on no-kill and said, we want to be no-kill. And many animal control officers were vehemently opposed to the no-kill. And it's interesting why. Their concern was that if it's no-kill, you could have shelters with animals crammed into cages and, and dogs and cats that may never be adopted. They're going to live their life with a pretty poor quality of life. When do you, when do you say enough is enough? Yeah. And by the way, there, unfortunately, there are other shelters that say, well, the animal's been here for three weeks and we haven't found a home for it. We're going to put it to sleep. And that's, that's a reality in shelters all over the country. Okay, we're going to continue this discussion right after the break. Welcome back to Animals Today. We're speaking with attorney Bob Ferber. Bob, if no kill is defined by some shelters by not killing animals that have treatable medical or behavioral issues, that too can be so subjective. And who determines what are treatable medical and behavioral issues? Because unless an animal got hit by a car and is so badly injured, or an animal is suffering terribly from cancer, and the right thing to do is euthanize the animal, and actually that's the very definition of euthanasia, is putting an animal out of its misery when he's suffering. But with the exception of only a handful of instances, one can argue that there are no behavioral or medical issues that cannot be treated. We just talked, Lori, about how behavior is uh, one of the factors that makes an animal adoptable or not adoptable, and that shelter workers tend to be the ones that determine if a dog or a cat that comes in the shelter, if their behavior is acceptable or if it's unwanted, can it be fixed? The other factor that plays into whether a shelter is going to kill an animal and is a medical condition. Is it a medical condition that can't be treated? And the reality is just about every medical condition, with the exception of some advanced cancer, uh, some you know cardiac problems or others, most medical conditions that animals have when they come into a shelter can be treated, either with short-term treatment or long-term medication or surgery. Unlike behavior issues, which are judged by the local shelter worker, interestingly, what treatment an animal will get or not get uh, for medical problems is usually determined by the policy of the shelter itself, of the shelter manager. And where does their policy come from? It's how much money the elected officials have given them to provide medical care. Most people would be shocked to find that the overwhelming majority of shelters around the country don't have a veterinarian on staff. They're lucky to even have a veterinary technician on staff. Most shelters don't have an x-ray machine. Most shelters are inequipped to even 
do a minor, a, a, a very common knee surgery, or e- even dental, an animal that has gum disease and needs dental work, which can be very dangerous if not treated. Shelters are ill-equipped. But in this case, I don't think we can put the blame or place the responsibility on the local shelter worker. It's the responsibility of the manager or the one who runs the shelter, and they're beholden to the elected officials who create their budget. So there are shelters that where, you know, an elected official say, we're going to give you enough money to have a vet, and we're going to give you a surgery room, and we're going to give you an x-ray machine. And we want, when an animal comes in with a broken leg, we're not going to put it to sleep, we're going to fix it. And other shelters, unfortunately, most of them will say when a dog is hit by a car, it's unfixable. But really, it's not that it's unfixable. It's that they don't have the money to fix it. And so it's a money issue. And it's in some shelters, a shelter that I work at has an extraordinary, a nonprofit group that I'm on the board of. We provide the medical care for this local shelter. So almost every animal that would have been euthanized in another shelter within the same county these animals get treated. Uh, they even get dental work. They get surgeries, major surgeries, orthopedic surgeries, uh, ophthalmology treatment. But that's very rare. That's a nonprofit that's paying for it. So without a nonprofit like that, I can tell you that literally in just the local shelter that I'm at, I'm not blaming anybody individually, but there's probably a couple of thousand animals that would have been killed, but for the fact that a nonprofit yeah. stepped in, because the elected officials, I'm going to be blunt about it, the L.A., you know, I know we're listening to reader, listeners all over the country, but the L.A. County elected officials don't think it's worth the money to fix all these problems that you and I and most of your listeners would say, wait a minute. That's fixable. That's outrageous. Right. You're going to kill a dog for a broken leg. You're going to kill a dog because it has an infection and needs a minor surgery or a st- or has a bad eye and it, it needs the eye to be removed. That's what plays into what's adoptable. Bob, when we adopted one of our cats, Margarita, she had a terrible upper respiratory tract infection, which Peter and I easily treated with a short course of antibiotics. That she was fine. I know a lot of shelters that would have killed her, euthanized her, killed her because of the upper respiratory infection, because they would have said she's untreatable and thus unadoptable. And take it one step further, and then they're going to say later on, but we're no kill. Right. Lori, I'm glad you mentioned about the upper respiratory infection with your cat, because in my experience in Los Angeles, which is over 40 years, I personally saw hundreds of examples and became aware of thousands of examples of shelter cats that came in with minor upper respiratory infections, which is basically a head cold uh, or a chest cold, and they were put to sleep immediately Mm. without any effort to treat it. Mm. And they said, and they labeled that cat as unadoptable because of a minor cold. And that's, that's what your listeners and all of us need to be aware of, right. is that behind that term, no kill, no matter who it is, what agency, what entity, shelter, anywhere in the country, the term means nothing unless you understand the internal policies of what do you, what are your standards at this shelter, meaning you, meaning the shelter workers, what are their standards 
how much care will they give? How much time and patience and training will they give for behavior issues? How much money and resources will they devote to fix or correct medical problems? And that's what determines the quality of care and whether the shelter is doing what we want. Because when people want no kill, I think most people would agree, we want you to do what I would do it with my pet. We want you to spend as much money or even more because you're the government. You should have the money for this so that these animals can have a home. And sadly, that's just not the case. So when we hear no kill, you know, I, I'm rather cynical about it. It's a good marketing ploy. It doesn't mean that people are being evil or trying to purposely, intentionally deceive the public. But it's a very misleading term. And I think that uh, it's important for listeners to know in their own community, when a sh their shelter says we're no-kill, talk to the people there and find out what do you mean by no-kill. When an animal comes in with behavior issues, how bad does it have to be that you're going to kill that dog or a cat? And with the medical conditions, what medical conditions do you not treat? And then you can define whether they are no-kill, low-kill, or whatever. Fascinating discussion. Okay, don't go away. We're going to take one more break. We'll be right back. Rita, you look upset. I am, and I'm not sure what to do. My neighbor's dog is tied up outside. He looks very skinny and sick, and I never see food or clean water given to him. You need to report this right away. What do you mean? Well, you should call Animal Services or the police and tell them about the abused and neglected dog. They can help to make sure the dog is properly taken care of. Okay, I can't stand to watch him suffer anymore. What's the number? Even though most of us take good care of our pets, not everyone treats dogs and cats with the care and compassion they need to be safe and healthy. If you see that a dog or cat is not being treated properly, report it to Animal Services or the police right away. Pets need food and clean water and protection from extreme weather. You can make the difference, and you don't have to give your name. Help stop pet abuse and neglect. Be their voice. Make the call. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. Welcome back. Bob Ferber, I'm aware of more than just a few shelters who maintain their, quote, no-kill status by turning down the intake of certain kinds of animals, like the pit bull types or any dog, other than the most desirable, most adoptable dogs. So a person finds a stray dog and wants to take him to his local shelter so that dog is given a chance to be adopted, that shelter will indicate they're full or whatever excuse. They tell the person to drop the dog off at another shelter or the county shelter. Yes, that's true. Without naming names, I can tell you that there is a well-known nonprofit in Southern California that does exactly what you're describing. It will take in animals, and then if the animal is difficult to adopt or needs to be euthanized, will transfer it to the government shelter and the, shelter, the government shelter takes the statistic of killing the animal, and that nonprofit advertises themselves as no kill. Right. And they will not admit it, 
but I know firsthand that it happens. And there are other shelters. There's another situation in Southern California where a shelter in one city, when they get too full, what they do is they tell the people to go to this other shelter in another county. And that county shelter, because for whatever good reasons, will take the animals that the other shelter won't take because they want to give the people an option when they have to give up an animal. What you're talking about is this manipulation of statistics and this sort of moving animals around like chess pieces and... uh, And deceiving the public. And deceiving the public. It's absolutely... And I think everybody needs to understand that while it's wonderful that nonprofit groups can claim that they're not killing any animals... People should understand that nonprofits have the option of doing that because they can turn away an animal. And anybody who has called up an, a rescue group and said, and said, wait a minute, I found an animal on the street, will you take it? The odds are the rescue group is going to say, we have no room. So where do you bring the animal? You bring it to the shelter. So the rescue group can always say, we've never killed an animal unless it was an extreme example. Well, that's great, but you should understand, folks, that you're comparing apples and oranges. You can't compare that to the shelter and call the shelter people evil or, you know, that they don't care about animals because the shelters have a a responsibility, a legal responsibility in most cases, to take every animal in. So I think it's a good point, Laurie, what you brought up is the distinction between no-kill with nonprofit rescue groups and what no-kill is with government shelters. Government shelters are under pressure uh, to, you know, keep the number that they only have so much room, they only have so much budget, and they don't have the option in most cases of turning animals away, whereas rescue groups do. Bob, to what extent are liability issues or legal issues playing a part in whether a dog or cat gets euthanized? Lori, I would say that it's the primary driving force behind the policies about behavior. It is the reason why a shelter worker in a, in let's say a large city or county is determining that, well, this dog is growling when we take his food away. We think that that's dangerous. We're going to put that dog to sleep. Where does that come from? You hit the nail on the head. It comes from the lawyers. It comes from the, the legal advisors to the shelter who, are, who also are advisors to that city or county and are determining that this is too risky. So in, they're balancing the risk of adopting that animal to somebody that might get injured who then might sue the city or county or to a shelter worker or to a volunteer. So in the end, I'm so glad you brought this up, Lori. It's really lawyers who may not even care about animals at all, who are actually making the decisions, forming the policies about whether or not an animal is going to be rehabilitated for a behavior issue or not rehabilitated. Mm. The job of the lawyer is, as I said, risk management, not risk elimination. But there are lawyers around the country that tell cities, don't do any, don't take any risks with that dog or that cat that is acting fractious or the cat that's hissing or the dog that's growling. Don't take any risks. Put that animal to sleep because we don't want a lawsuit from the volunteer. We don't want a lawsuit from, you know, the shelter worker or the person who adopts the animal. And if you take that position, 
it's horrible. You can get to the point where you can you can be killing all the animals right. that come in that are right. scared to death when they're on their first day in the shelter. So it's a matter of hoping that the lawyers for a particular city or county are willing to say, look, we understand that animals have issues. Animals can be dangerous. I mean, animals inherently are scared and they have teeth and, you know, and we, we all know that even the friendliest animal scared under the right circumstances can hurt somebody. We accept that in the world of animals. We know that. So great point, Lori, and I, I very few people know what you just pointed out. And even in the local shelter where I work, nobody that I've ever spoken to knew that it was the lawyers making the decisions about how far you go to help an animal that is scared, growling, hissing, biting. What a shame. Bob, are shelters legally required to document for public record why they killed a dog or cat? Yes. However, <laughs> sort of gets to the point of what's adoptable. What is an accurate record? Cities and counties normally keep records of all the euthanasias. They keep statistics. They document why they put an animal to sleep. Some cities uh, or states have laws about it, but it's customary for cities and counties when they kill an animal to put down, you know, because it had, you know, it bit somebody, something like that. But unfortunately, I've seen numerous situations where the animal, in your opinion and my opinion, would have been adoptable, right. but they write the records in a way that they distort it, they exaggerate the problem, or they just plain lie and say something that's different. And there's very few controls over that. So when people use uh, the Freedom of Information Act type laws to get copies of the records of why animals were euthanized, and sometimes animal activists have done that, they've complained that the records are very vague. They don't make it clear. They say the animal was fractious or the animal was dangerous. Well, what does dangerous mean? We don't know. And unfortunately, it becomes difficult for members of the public to critique what the shelter is doing or hold them accountable if they don't keep accurate records. Record keeping is critical so that people can be held accountable. And yet, who's keeping those records? The shelter, and who's overseeing those records? The shelter director. But people should understand, shelter directors around the country are under pressure all the time to spend less money and to get more animals out of the shelter as quickly as possible, one way or the other, either through an adoption or being euthanized. Now, when there's more activism, where the public is outraged at the number of animals that are being euthanized, you will see that the shelters will do a better job. They will start trying to reduce the numbers through adoption and not through euthanasia. This is for another topic, but around the country, the most underfunded agency in every city government that I've ever looked at, the most underfunded agency is the animal control, the shelter. They get the least amount of money. They're the most desperate for resources, for staffing. If you ask the public, they would want these shelters to be properly funded so that the animals get the behavior training they need, they get the medical care that they need, that the animals have the space to be held long enough to find a suitable home. But you have shelter directors who may be very well-intentioned who go to meetings where the, their supervisors, the elected officials are saying, why are you spending so much money? Get the money down, get the money, get the budget down. 
And this goes to a, a bigger problem of politicians and elected officials who don't care enough about animals. There's not enough political will in the United States to remedy this problem. Okay, Bob, we've learned in this discussion just how complex the simple question leads us to, like uh, the definition of no-kill. And you touched upon the term low-kill, which really can't capture, you know, it's an attempt to say something, but it really turns off some potential adopters and it doesn't really capture the complexity of the situation. So, you know, maybe we need, or maybe it's just not possible to do it in a phrase or a tagline. You need a mission statement and uh, that needs to be attached to the shelter. I I don't know how else we can convey really what's going on simply in a sort of snappy advertising fashion, you know? You know, Peter, I've actually struggled with that problem of, is there a better term? Is there a better phrase? Because we like catchphrases. You know, a mission statement, I agree with you, is a good way, but how many people are going to read the mission statement? And even with the mission statement, as Lori pointed out, so much of this is subjective. And even among rescue groups, there are rescue groups that would never spend money to give a senior animal uh, a dental you know, dental care, and there are other rescue groups that recognize that that is critical and that could cause heart problems, whatever, and it makes the animal more adoptable. And both groups may be very good groups. In the animal world that we're all immersed in, we understand that it is subjective. So much of it is subjective. So I don't know the answer to the question of how do you define this better, but when people go into those shelters, absolutely sure that They don't appreciate what you just mentioned, the complexity of this issue, and that no-kill almost certainly doesn't mean what they think it means. And I think it's something that we have to just keep looking at. I'd be curious if any of your listeners have some input, you know, have ideas about how do you deal with what is there a better phrase? I I mean, the state struggled with this by coming up with the term all adoptable animals. But as Lori pointed out at the beginning of our discussion, what does that mean, right. adoptable? It goes, it's in circles, it's circular reasoning. It goes back to, well, we don't know what adoptable is. It depends on the individual shelter, the shelter worker, the individual rescue group. I don't think that this is a problem that will ever go away. But I think that, you know, the answer is I really think it's what you guys are doing. You're letting people understand this so that if more people were listening and understood what no-kill or low-kill means, I think that would help tremendously because then you understand what these what the city means and people should go to the shelter and say or go to the shelter manager and say what do you mean by no kill I want to see the standards when do you decide that a cat is not adoptable when do you decide a dog is not adoptable as a member of the public I want to know it shouldn't be a secret that's determined within the shelter system. And unfortunately, it is. I think information and being aware, that's important. And that's why I'm so glad you guys brought this topic up, because it's probably one of the most misunderstood terms and issues in animal welfare. Bob Ferber, this has been such a great discussion, and there's so much more to this topic than I initially anticipated. So thank you very much. You're very welcome. Time for Peter? Oh no, I know what that means. 
What? An animal quiz potpourri. Potpourri. Of topics. Jeopardy-like. Yes. Listeners are going to play along. See if you can beat Peter. Not hard. Hit me. Hit me. Okay. Which of the following animals breathe through their skin and lungs? Fish, frog, earthworm. Oh, I'll go with frog. Frog is correct. Right. They've got that very moist skin. Yeah. Easy to exchange gases through. Mm. Correct. Which animal has the largest brain of all terrestrial mammals? Elephant, I guess. Yes. Okay. Now, the sperm whale has the largest brain of any animal species, weighing up to 20 pounds. Lemurs are are only native to one country. Which one is it? Uh, Madagascar. Yes. The island of Madagascar. They are so cute. They are. Peter, as you know, we used a lot of different animals during World War II, right? Mules, dogs, pigeons, horses, cats, elephants, and others. And here's the question. What animal did the U.S. military try to use as bombers <laughs> during World War II? Okay, I'll go with a bird. Uh, bird. What? Pigeon? Bats. Bats. They were called bat bombs. Have you heard of that? <laughs> no. Before there were guided missiles and drones, there were bat bombs, right? The idea was to strap tiny timed incinerary bombs to bats and release them over the cities. The bats would then roost in buildings or whatever, and then after a while, the bombs would explode. According to the Washington Post, the U.S. military once recruited hundreds of Mexican free-tailed bats in a plot to blow up Japanese cities during World War II. Now, the whole scheme was cooked up by a Pennsylvania dentist. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And President Franklin D. Roosevelt rubber-stamped it, and then reportedly this whole idea ended when the bats and their bombs set most of a New Mexico military base on fire. That's so good. I need to read about this dentist. This is great. <laughs> yeah, dentists are bat. very creative. No, I'm laughing at dentists. I respect dentists. Many of them are... You do? Are, I do. Many of them are very creative. Bombs. They're inventors. Yep, yeah. that's right. Okay. Which animal has the most powerful bite in the world? Hmm. Like absolute, not like per tooth or per body weight. <laughs> right. Absolute. Absolute. I'm going to go with, I would not, uh, I'll go with uh, hippo again. The saltwater crocodile. Oh, yeah. Although hippo has a pretty strong bite, I'll tell you that. I wouldn't want one. At 4,000 pounds per square inch, 4,000 pounds, the saltwater crocodile of northern Africa has the strongest bite of any living animal, powerful enough to snag and drag a zebra or an antelope by the hoof into the water. Which animal has the longest tail of any land Mammal. Mammal. Wow. Longest tail. Longest tail. I'll go with a kind of monkey. Good guess. The giraffe has a tail measuring up to eight feet. Its body is about eight feet. Now, if you want to consider caudal fin a tail, the common thresher shark has a tail or fin measuring up to 10 feet in length. And this is the same length as the shark's body. But the male long-tailed widow bird is the animal with the longest tail in relationship to its body. It measures three feet, which is four times the length of its nine-inch body. These beautiful birds are found in Botswana, Namibia, and other countries in southern Africa. 
Mm. That's really interesting, especially, yeah. well, it all is fascinating to me, but you wonder what forces led to a thresher shark having such a large fin like you described. Have you seen, you know, can envision what they look like. Yeah. It's really amazing. And you wonder what benefit does this confer? It must be something pretty powerful. I mean, so weird looking. If you're scuba diving, you're going to recognize the thresher <laughs> shark, right. aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Or you're not going to want to distinguish which shark is approaching <laughs> That's you, right? That's a good right? point. What land animal, land animal has the largest eye? Mm, okay, this one I know also, ostrich. Ostrich is correct. Yeah. The colossal squid oh, yeah. has the largest animal eyes ever studied. The colossal squid has the largest eyes that have ever existed in the animal kingdom in a living Colossal squid, they measure about 27 centimeters across, about the size of a soccer ball. Yeah, how that's many, big. How many bones does a shark have? Okay, trick question alert. <laughs> uh, no bones. Correct. No bones, please. The shark's skeleton is made of cartilage and connective tissue. But I'll tell you, Peter, that even though sharks don't have bones, they still can fossilize. As most sharks age, they deposit calcium salts in their skeletal cartilage to strengthen it. Which flightless bird is the emblem of New Zealand? That's the kiwi. The kiwi, the national icon of New Zealand and unofficial national emblem. New Zealanders have been called kiwis since the nickname was bestowed by Australian soldiers in the First World War. A group of flamingos is called what? A squad? A flamboyance? Yeah. A pack. I know. You've laid this one on me before. I don't know if you remember, but I, do remember. I didn't believe that it would be actually a flamboyance. But it is. Yeah, I was seeing if you remembered. My, Usually I don't. The purpose is to learn from my quizzes. Yeah. Paul McCartney wrote a song about his dog. Mm -hmm. What is the name of that song? Uh, uh, Jet. Jet. You know, that's right. Jet. Actually, Jet was written when... Paul McCartney was with the Wings, right? Yeah. Okay, so I should rephrase the question. What song did Paul McCartney write when he was with the Beatles about his dog? Okay, that one I don't know. So Martha, my dear. Really? Yeah. That was about a dog. Wow. About his old English sheepdog, Martha. That's sweet. It's a sweet song, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. Love it. Ah, which my... rock band, this one you should know, which rock band wrote and sang Wild Horses? The Rolling Stones. Yes, that was a song on their 1971 album, Sticky Fingers. Can you name another song with horse in their title? Horse. Um, horse with no name. Yes, right? I knew you were going to say that. Sang by the group America. That was released in 1971. It was America's very first single and was also their biggest hit, actually. Do you know what the title means? Stuck in the desert? Uh, hot, well, hot, hot. This is interesting. Know. Some... U.S. radio stations banned the song because of its title and some of its lyrics. It was thought that the song was about heroin. Hey. Horse is a common street term for... Uh, heroin? Yes. Okay. I didn't know that, by the way. And lyrics, yeah. like feeling good to be out of the rain, was thought to be a metaphor for escaping the drudgery of everyday life in the city. Other lyrics, which were criticized, the heat was hot. There were plants and birds, birds and, and rocks and, and things, things, right? Right, because there ain't no one for to give you no pain, mm. which is continuing on the heroin metaphor. Dewey Bunnell was the writer of the song, and the other members of America completely denied any drug reference connected with the lyrics. According to Dewey Bunnell, the song was composed to capture the hot, 
dry feeling of the desert. So you were right. Mm. You believe fifty years. That song is fifty years old. I know. That is that is fast. Okay, good job, Peter. Pretty good. I think you did great. Okay, <laughs> thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Right? Sounds just like you, right? That's good. That's, uh, okay. I dare you to sing it now. That's where we cut it off. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>